Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode listens to the music from Always, made in 1989. Now here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Smoke it. Hi, so we're here today to talk about Always, but I want to take a couple steps back and just talk a little bit more about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I received an email from a listener named Hal Morrison, who lives in Fort Worth, Texas, and he had some great comments about John Williams that I wanted to share with you. He writes, Your discussion of The Last Crusade and Mr. Williams' comments on the prologue reminded me of April 2010 when Mr. Williams appeared with the Fort Worth Symphony. His performance immediately sold out, so tickets were made available for Mr. Williams' rehearsal with the orchestra earlier in the day of the concert. My family were lucky enough to get tickets for the rehearsal. I'm sure the actual performance was great also, but the rehearsal was an amazing experience. We were able to sit close enough to the stage to hear Mr. Williams speak with the orchestra members during the rehearsal, and he was so positive and reinforcing as he guided them to the sound he was looking for. As you described from your L.A. experience, Mr. Williams conducted the L.C. prologue with the film and guided them to hit the extensive sync points in that piece. After the rehearsal, Mr. Williams graciously took it upon himself to sign autographs for a very long line of enthusiastic fans. This, of course, brought up the question of what do you say to someone whose work has meant so much to you for so long? I think I managed something like, thank you for all you've done in your career, and he smiled and signed my ticket. That autograph is one of my prized possessions. So Hal, just as I've said to everyone else that has told me about meeting John Williams, I'm extremely jealous and envious and I hate you. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, great, that's a great story about meeting John Williams and um, I hope you treasure not just the possession of his autograph but the memory of seeing that extraordinary rehearsal and getting to talk to him. All right, so with that, let's talk about Always. After suffering a lot of mudslinging following the release of his comedy film 1941, Steven Spielberg began to ignore what others felt should be his career path and set out to make films that he felt were right for him. That was true for directing The Color Purple, which many at the time thought was the biggest hiring mistake in movie history. That was also true when it came time to remake the 1943 Spencer Tracy film A Man Named Joe, which was renamed Always and released in December 1989. This would be Spielberg's first attempt at this making a decidedly romantic movie, and the results showed that perhaps the director should keep the sentimentality out of his movies. The story of making Always began back in 1974 when Spielberg was in the middle of nearly sinking his career with Jaws. While production was going behind schedule, Spielberg was having a good time with actor Richard Dreyfuss on set, with the two trading lines from a man named Joe to amuse themselves. According to a few online articles, Spielberg told Dreyfuss they should remake the movie someday. That day came in late 1988, after MGM, the studio that produced A Man Named Joe, passed on the remake and gave it away to Universal Pictures. Spielberg's film was a go, with Richard Dreyfuss achieving one of his life goals to remake one of his favorite films with his favorite director. 
It would be the third time Spielberg and Dreyfus worked together, though 12 years had passed since Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Dreyfus was the big star of the film, having won an Oscar 12 years before filming began. His two co-stars, Holly Hunter and John Goodman, were working their way up the ranks in 1989, with both having worked together in Raising Arizona in 1987 to increase their exposures. Now I should give you a brief synopsis of the plot of Always before I go on. Dreyfus plays an aerial firefighter named Pete, whose plane explodes during a mission to extinguish a forest fire. He is sent back to Earth as a ghost with the mission to help a younger pilot become as good as he was. The twist is that the younger pilot is falling in love with Pete's former girlfriend. In the movie, Pete never tells his girlfriend, Dorinda, that he loves her. And the two have a song that they dance to twice in the film, once when Pete is alive and once after his death. And once his mission is complete, Pete walks into the light into heaven. Now, does that sound familiar? So, yes, this is the plot to a guy named Joe, obviously, but it's also partly the plot to the movie Ghost, which came out six months after Always hit theaters. As I was doing research about the production of Always, several questions went unanswered in the process. The main question was, why was the film released in December 1989 just four months after filming ended. Even a film that has no special effects or major action pieces takes about six months to go from filming to release. And when you connect the dots, the only conclusion you can make is that Spielberg knew that Ghost was being made and knew that it was set for release in summer 1990. Even though the two films were being made independent of each other, it's amazing that they share similar plot points. One wonders if Bruce Joel Rubin, who wrote the screenplay for Ghost, got his inspiration from a guy named Joe. In any case, filming for Always and Ghost overlapped by one month, and in Hollywood, every studio pretty much knows what the other studios are doing. Spielberg wanted his movie to come out first, fearing that if his movie was second, it would sink at the box office because audience would likely not pay money to see the same film twice. So Spielberg persuaded Universal Pictures to release Always during Christmas week in 1989. In order to meet this release date, everyone had to work fast in the post-production of Always. That included John Williams, who was no stranger to working quickly on a score. And his assignment was made easier by the use of song standards in the film that would play over some major scenes. Many of the songs in the film, especially the classic Smoke Gets In Your Eyes, were crucial to the plot, and Williams was, thankfully, not asked to weave those existing melodies into his score. But he didn't contribute much to the film. Only about 30 minutes of original music appears in Always, and the score doesn't really make its first appearance in the film until the 30-minute mark. Even though Williams had experience working under a tight deadline, you could tell that the rushed work schedule affected the final product. Unlike the other two film scores he wrote in 1989, always has a score that doesn't leave much of a mark on the listener. It's devoid of major thematic material, and even though that was true for films like Space Camp, which was made just three years earlier, and some of his films in the 1960s, the mood of the score to always feels hard to grasp. That is very evident when you listen to the music written for Pete and Dorinda. This is not a soaring love theme on the violins like the music for Han and Leia, or Indiana Jones and Marion Ravenwood, at least at first. 
And when you hear it for the first time, it's merely a mood piece performed on keyboards, something to provide a sense of, well, I'm not really sure. There is melodic construction there, of course, but it doesn't jump out at you as quickly and as surely as some of the other themes he has composed. Even if you just look back at the love themes he has composed, this is unlike anything he has ever done or will do again. The love theme, as it were, does expand a bit later on when Ghost Pete talks to Dorinda in her sleep. It's one of the few scenes in the film where I felt Spielberg was getting a handle on the romantic angle of the film, but perhaps it's Williams' music that helped that. The piano takes center stage here, taking over for the keyboard and tinkling out the love theme. My ears perked up in a scene that involved a defective escort vehicle and the plane carrying Ghost Pete and the young pilot he is assigned to help, named Ted. 
This is an important scene because the Haywire escort vehicle takes Ted's plane straight to the front porch where Dorinda is staying and moves the love story along. The scene gave Williams the chance to write a virtuoso piece for strings that brought a lot of energy to the scene and to the movie as a whole, even if only for a couple of minutes. This cue doesn't really fit into the rest of the score because its energy is off the charts, the orchestra is fully involved, and the music feels like it is part of the visuals. Only in the finale does that happen again, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. One of the lasting highlights of the film was seeing Audrey Hepburn as an angel of sorts guiding Pete through his mission. Hepburn hadn't acted in a film in eight years before Spielberg asked her to be in Always, and Hepburn was able to work despite suffering from early stages of the abdominal cancer that would take her life a little less than four years later. Her scenes with Richard Dreyfuss in several Incarnations of Heaven feature music, but it's not about establishing thematic material, but rather reinforcing the otherworldly mood of Heaven with Williams composing music for keyboards. Music does pick up just a bit when Pete's version of Heaven has him in a wheat field witnessing one of his first flights as a firefighter.
film's final 20 minutes features almost non-stop Williams music. It begins with a major fire spreading quickly in a forest, and the aerial firefighters are asked to fly over it to clear a path for the firefighters on the ground to get to safety. The scene begins with Ghost Pete telling Ted to take his plane instead of waiting for a ground rescue operation. Williams colors in the scene mostly with strings as Ted prepares to fly. and the orchestra picks up as we get a shot of the fire quickly trapping the firefighters, almost overwhelming them. French horns are in order as they are pretty much the only instrument that can be heard over the crackle of the fire. Dorinda arrives at the command center at this point, and instead of risking losing another man that she loves, Dorinda hops into Ted's plane to carry out the rescue mission, even though she's never done so before. But she has Ghost Pete to help her, and after they save the firefighters, Dorinda pulls the plane up and catches a glimpse of the stars above the smoke. And now Ghost Pete has a big heart to heart with Dorinda about the way her life will be and finally says I love you. That declaration of love brings out the love theme now in the woodwinds.
After this emotional moment, Dorinda sees that the plane is losing pressure and has to crash land somewhere. She takes it to a lake where the plane submerges. Instead of trying to escape, she makes the decision to drown, but Ghost Pete reaches out his hand and pulls her to safety. Dorinda returns to the airfield, and Pete finally realizes that he has to let Dorinda and Ted be together. Until that final minute of the film, I didn't feel that this score had many John Williams touches. But as Pete walks away to heaven, I suppose, Williams brings the strings in to pump up the emotion a couple of notches. It was a very satisfying musical finale, even if that love theme doesn't really emerge easily from it. So, what should we make of this score by John Williams? 
In a sense, it feels like Williams was just phoning it in, as it were. But when Williams phones in a score, essentially putting in a moderately dedicated effort, it's better than most composers can do on a great day. As I mentioned earlier, there seemed to be a rush job put on post-production to get the film released by Christmas, and Williams recorded the score over a few days in late October and early November. It was the end of a very busy year that had him working non-stop from spring to late fall, with the results turning out to be, again, better than almost all of his colleagues at the time. Spielberg's thought that getting his film out before Ghost would bring him better box office results proved to be wrong. Always made a profit, but only grossed $74 million at the box office worldwide. When Ghost ended its theatrical run in early 1991, it had made $505 million and was nominated for the Best Picture Oscar. If there's anyone who says Always is a better film than Ghost, I want to know how much Spielberg paid you to say that. So for better or for worse, this film closed out the 1980s for John Williams. There could be an argument that this was his best decade creatively, though the output from 1985 onward has kind of divided some fans, and they believe it might not hold up to what Williams wrote from 1970 to 1975, for example. And he would move on to the 1990s with an eye toward working on even smaller films. That was very true with the first two scores of 1990, and on paper, many thought the third film he scored in 1990 would be a moderately small film as well. It is going to be so much fun exploring John Williams' music from the 1990s, and I hope you will join me on this journey. As we go through this next decade of music, I want to remind you to send me your comments by email to jeffswim at aol.com. And please keep posting those reviews on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to tell your friends about this show. I look forward to talking about Stanley and Iris on the next episode. And until then, the baton is down. Mm-hmm.